everybody, welcome to this Bolsos podcast, a production of the Brazilian journal Bolsos, Histories in Global Contexts, edited by the Graduate Program in History of the Federal University of Santa Catarina. This is Bruna Grando, and thanks for joining me on the podcast. In today's episode, we are chatting with Vicente Dobroruca, Associate Professor at Universidade de Brasília. He is the author of the article, Ibn Fadlan and a Bypassed Remark on an Imaginary Geographical Topos, some observations on the decreasing factual credibility regarding the Caucasus area of the Silk Road, published in Volume 27, Issue 44 of Esbossos. Hi Vicente, I'm very pleased to have you here with us today. Welcome to Esbossos Podcast. Hello, Bruna, and all our listeners. It, it, it is a pleasure to be here today, and I'm very grateful to Esbossos and to the University of Federal of Santa Catarina, UFSC, uh, for the invitation. Thank you again. So, I'd like to kick off by asking you, what got you interested in Ibn Fadlan? As a matter of fact, I first got into Ibn Fadlan some years ago during a taught course on the Khazars, which are something very weird. They are, or they were, Jewish kingdom. We don't know exactly where, around the Caspian Sea, around the Sea of Aral, or perhaps more to the west, more to the east, but we know that it existed. Since then, I noticed that Ibn Fadlan, he held his interest not only for people uh, investigating Muslim travelers, uh, but also people that are scholars in the field of apocalyptic literature, like myself. And so this happened to me uh, due to his detailed description of the peoples of Gog and Magog. But what's Gog and Magog? Gog and Magog are two peoples, uh, sometimes they appear mixed, like Gog Magog or Gog from Magog, but their first appearance is in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38, in, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, if you wish. And they are basically foes from the north. And they remain like that. This, this is a very interesting trait in, in all the authors investigated because they are not enemies from the south, for example. They are mythical peoples that fit in several descriptions. Ibn Fadlan gives us description not just of Gog and Magog, but he claims to have seen one man that belonged to such people. When did it first appear in historiography? This is something of puzzle, because it is in the Alexander romance, which is fabulous account, a mythical account, of the exploits of Alexander the Great. And this was how Europe and Asia and Africa, even in Ethiopia, this is how people knew about Alexander. We're not talking here about scholars, about monks, but the, the, the average person knew Alexander via the Alexander romance. And it is very strange that this this reference to Gog and Magog, well, this is just as fantastic, just 
it's fabulous as the references to the Amazons, for example. Okay, so these people never existed, but they may have been associated to other peoples from the steppe. And uh, what about the first authors where it disappeared? This, as I said, is a puzzle because, well, what does Ezekiel have to do with a fabulous portrait of Alexander? Well, this may have to do with that. This is the first reference that I know of in Josephus, the first century historian. He's a Jew and he's witness to the war in 67. And as a friend of mine used to say, Josephus never lies about the facts. He lies about how to interpret the, the facts. And, and I think he's quite right. And that maybe that's why Josephus is a favorite of, of mine. Josephus is, as far as I'm aware, the first one that joins Gog and Magog to the Scythians. That is to, well, now we're talking about a concrete people. Herodotus talks about the Scythians, Strabo, well, everybody knows who the Scythians were. And Josephus is the first one to say Gog and Magog are the Scythians. And the next step is also that he claims that Alexander built some sort of gates. These gates vary a lot in, in, in the legends. They can be a chain, they can be automatic gates, they can be made of mixed metals like copper and brass and so on. He made this sort of gates to contain these peoples. This is very important because Josephus links, as I said, Gog and Magog to the Scythians, okay? And he also claims that Alexander build the gates to contain such peoples. So this is the basic thing that appears in Ibn Fadlan, in Al-Biruni, in authors that you would never expect such a thing to appear. The trouble is that, well, if it appears in Josephus, it should appear in later authors that use Josephus. But for example, this does not appear at all in St. Jerome, who is an author of the third century. So maybe this is a bit of a digression here, but I think if we had the Arabic translation made in the ninth or the 10th century of Josephus, we could be much more comfortable with that. So to know that Josephus is, is the first one to link those themes is, well, it's better than nothing. But what's the next step? Could you tell us a little bit about the Islamic historiography that you dealt with? Yes, indeed. The Islamic historiographers that I dealt with, they go from Al-Tabari, uh, even stranger to the theme, Al-Idrizi also. Al-Idrizi is writing in the 12th century. He's not an ignoramus who, who is talking nonsense. Al-Idrisi is, is making a world map to Roger II in Palermo. This is around, uh, well, 1154. And he puts Gog and Magog following Ibn Fadlan. In general, we find this in Al-Masudi, who is just a bit later than Ibn Fadlan. Al-Biruni, we find that even in Al-Idrizi, who is a case in point, and this was very surprising to me, 
because he's not an ignoramus who does have no idea what he's talking about. He's a scholar. He's doing a map, a world map for Roger II in Palermo. This is in the 12th century, it's around uh, 1154, I think. And he fits Gog and Magog in that. Usually what I found out is that there are two different trends that, that meet in Muslim travelers and scholars during the Middle Ages. One is that of the feats of Alexander the Great, the gates he made or the chains to contain such peoples. And another one is whether those scholars put an apocalyptic flavor on that or not. What most surprised you as you did your research? Well, some of that was the monstrous aspect and habits that they would have. And here I quote, Even Fadlan says that he saw one man that belonged to Yuj and Mayuj, which is Arabic for Gog and Magog. And he says that they live naked, that there is some sort of sea between the place he is in and them, and that they live like animals, that they make sex uh, like animals, but that God, in his infinite mercy, he gives them every day one fish so that they do not starve. And if they eat more than one fish, then they begin to feel sick, so to speak. Why would God do such a thing if they are eschatological enemies? That was a surprise. And I think that this theme of the fish mixes some perhaps New Testament themes of Christ and the fish, and also themes from Exodus, from a God that provides no matter what. And I was surprised because as far as I could trace that, uh, well, after Josephus, uh, about whom I just talked, is that I, I could trace that in a text which is a, a variant of uh, Alexander romance called The Syrian Legend Concerning Alexander. We have all that nonsense about Gog and Magog and the Amazons and, and all that. And another such text, Andrew, who was bishop in Caesarea, he links the Huns in an invasion coming from the Caucasus in 395 to apocalyptic enemies. So, we, as you can see, the Caucasus, the, the chain of mountains in the Caucasus, is usually understood as a sort of boundary of the earth that was reached by Alexander, who, as you may also have noticed, even at each stage of, trans of transformations, done in the text, who is already fabulous in the beginning, uh, falsely attributed to Callisthenes, etc. He, he becomes a sort of Christian champion. Why? Because he locks these peoples so that their damage is either limited in some versions or else that they will only come out during the end of times. And what are some of the major challenges in terms of analyzing the Silk Road today? Well, I think that today we are far better equipped to, to study the Silk Roads. Well, first of all, uh, post-colonial historiography put them 
the Silk Road, not any longer as a sideshow that was eclipsed by the Atlantic and the discovery of the New World, but rather both in archaeology and in social historians, recent ones. What I see is that the Silk Roads are now understood as long-duration phenomenon which has not break up while Portugal and Spain explored the Atlantic, but it's the opposite. The Silk Roads go on from, they don't stop at, at Constantinople or Aleppo or whatever. They go on to Europe and they continue to America because the goods that are traditionally traded in the Silk Roads, they will go on. And it's almost, I would not say a circumnavigation, but it is always around the globe because we know that the Chinese had, and this was one of the ends of the Silk Roads, the Chinese had commerce with Alaska long before America was discovered. And this is not speculation. We know that. So it is the, the Silk Roads are uh, something that can be understood in a very broad sense. Well, th this is from a theoretical point, point of view, and this is also supported by economic history, social history, and so on. But I think also that, that, that the end of the Soviet Union put several of these countries on the route, and the same in China. So there is a, a blossoming tourist culture around the Silk Roads. And well, it, it's like any kind of tourism. It, it, it has its downside. But I think on the most, this, this is beneficial because more and more people can have a glimpse of where the caravanserais, where the merchants stopped, what were biggest uh, natural obstacles, the deserts, the oases, and so on and so forth. So I think that we may be experiencing a kind of golden age to study the Silk Roads. Now about Gog and Magog. What did you find in the study and should we be concerned? I don't think we should be concerned with Gog and Magog as such because they don't exist in the first place, if you allow me for a little joke. What we should be concerned is that when so many Muslim scholars talk about death in, during a long time, and we know that, well, the origin of this was in Ezekiel talking about foes from the north. Well, then this goes to Jewish Christian apocalyptic literature, especially with an author we call Pseudo-Methodius. Well, he should have been Methodius of Patara, but this is wrong. So we, we, we call him Pseudo-Methodius, who is one of the most enthusiastic apocalyptic writers on Gog and Magog. This is not an entirely new usage, if you will, of the term, because before him, we have in the 6th century, in an homily by Jacob of Serug, who died in 521. We have a very important step, because he's the first one to, to link the gates of Alexander to the hosts that will come at the end of time, that is the unclean peoples, Gog and Magog, to the Antichrist. 
So when this happens, we have, from a Christian point of view, a complete scene involving that all. Does this have anything to do with the Quran? Yes, definitely, because in the 18th Surah, there is talk about a character called Dulkarnain. Well, Dulkarnain could be literally the one with two horns, the two-horned one, which is a perfect metaphor for Alexander. If you look at Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, I mean the canonical Daniel, well, the, the analogy of Alexander to a ram that has two horns is common. It's, it appears everywhere. Now, there is a text that deviates a little fr from the Alexander romance, but uh, I would like to call the attention of our listeners, which is called uh, The History of Dulcarnain, which is a Muslim text from the 9th century, and it is a Spanish text. I think it has been translated in, by the end of the 1920s. And this text definitely mixes the Dulcarnain character with the Syrian legend. And here we find again the wall of iron and copper that holds Gog and Magog. So this would be one way of seeing the Quran. And the other one, I think, there are several, but another very important one, because this one is Al-Tabari mixes the same thing in his chronicle, I think, in the first book around the chapter. 112, something like that, around that, that part. He mixes the, the section in the Quran, what he calls Yad Yuj and Mad Yuj, which is, of course, Arabic for Gog and Magog. Now, would you be able to tell us a little bit about the key findings of your paper? I talked about that before. I think that this paper, this is part of my effort as a scholar interested in apocalyptic. Obviously, other scholars will read, even Fadlan, interested in other things. But I think what is interesting here is, of course, from my own point of view, as a, a scholar deals with apocalyptic literature, other scholars who are interested in other things, say, economic history, ethnicity and so on, even geography, climate, we'll find other things. But I think that all of us that read Ibn Fadlan, we, we should pay attention to some things that he says about the North that are absolutely in continuity with versions of the Alexander Romance. At some point in the Syrian legend, concerning Alexander that I already mentioned. Alexander begins to prophesy that the Hans, we're talking about Hans here, not Gog and Magog yet, will come through a narrow path through the gates that he's building. So he must take for that. And he also says that at this time, the earth shall melt with blood and the dung of men. Well, This may sound bizarre, but even Fadlan complains of the same thing, that when he is at the extreme north, that the earth stinks. This may be his personal opinion on the environment, but I think this resembles 
too much the Syrian version that we have. Are you interested in this kind of confusion between sources? Yes, indeed. I think this is a personal taste, so to speak, that, well, uh, I love confusing sources. Not everyone likes that, and it's not uh, wrong or right to prefer them. But I enjoy them very much, uh, so I thrive in, in sources that are mixing things like this melting, smelly earth that even Fadlan finds, but we also find that in the extreme of the world via the, the Syrian text on, which is a variant of the Alexander romance. I think that what interests me in Ibn Fadlan, well, what he has to say has already been studied because what we have is not his original work, so it's not that long. But when we compare that to, as I said, Al-Biruni, Al-Kazvini, Al-Shubi, Al-Idrizi, and, mind you, even Firdosi, the national Persian, they seem to have a need to put Gog and Magog as the definite limit of the world, the definite edges in the ed edges of the earth. There is one exception to that, which I have not seen properly researched, which is a letter, so to speak, a letter of Prester John or Preste João, as we say in Portuguese, to the Byzantine Emperor Manuel. This is around the time of, of Ali Idrisi. This is around 1165. And here we, we have an Ethiopian version of the same idea of that Alexander put a barrier to contain such peoples. So I find that this indistinction between fact and fiction very, very interesting. Because if we only have Josephus and Ezekiel, well, okay, and Josephus exaggerates on, on what he says about Alexander, and Ezekiel, well, that's it. But that's not what happens. We see a growing confusion, so to speak, around all these themes. And I think this is fascinating, in my opinion, but perhaps it is not or it is no longer the work for one, one person alone. I think it would be the work of a team of scholars or perhaps of an edited book, more than one book, because we are not talking just about Gog and Magog. For this, we have a very good book by Anderson in 1932. But that, that's not the point. We're, we're talking about later usages of that. And what are your plans for the future? Are you going to continue this research, or do you already have other one in mind? Well, I would really like to, to dig deeper into this for the next year or so. But I have other scholarly commitments, and most of them related to Persian apocalyptic literature, most of it in Middle Persian. So, for the time being, I think I'll have to leave Ibn Fadlan as something to do in my spare time, if I get any spare time at all, which is unlikely. Uh, but I, I plan to, to gather more evidence on him and on other travelers that talk about the gates, the frontier, the smelly earth. But this should 
take some some shape only in 2021. Definitely not this year. All right. Now, as we begin to wrap up, Vicente, I'd like to thank you for your participation and I ask you if is there any final thought you'd like to leave us with? Yes, before I leave you, thank you again for your kindness having this podcast with, with me. I think that reading even Fadlan or the other authors uh, that I quote uh, in the limited space that I had, like everyone, articles, papers, need to have a limit, we all know that, is that the theme of traveling to the north and the theme of the edges of the earth being limited by Gog and Magog over a sort of gate or, well, in Ibn Fadlan it's after a sea, but it, it's not a sea that people travel on. So this theme of the edges of the earth to the north, mostly in the Caucasus, but in some cases to the south, is something very important for anyone uh, uh, interested in apocalyptic literature. But then again, I think that as in any field of human enterprise, not, not everybody is interested in the same things. So I hope that more people will tackle the job of seeing the common points between the version of the Alexander romance, the Quran, and what is sort of concrete passages, con concrete observations of these travelers. Because in the end, the Caucasus exists, and after the Caucasus, we have this step. So it is, while it is uh, pure fiction to say that, uh, well, after those gates, there's Gog and Magog. Okay, but after the Caucasus is a different world, the world of nomadic peoples whose relation with the sedentary ones is not, definitely not as violent as we think. This varies a lot, a long time. But I think that four things should be taken together. The Syrian version of the romance of uh, Alexander, Ibn Fadlan and the other travelers, Gog and Magog as unclean peoples, and physical barriers that do exist. The Caucasus exists. So I think this would be a very nice field of research in its own right. Thank you. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening today. And thank you, Vicente, for your time. I really appreciate everything you have shared with us. And to anybody listening to this podcast, don't forget to check out the paper Ibn Fadlan and a bypassed remark on an imaginary geographical topos, some observations on the decreasing factual credibility regarding the Caucasus area of the Silk Road, which is available for download and also reading online through our website. It can be found in volume 27, issue 44 of his bosses. Until next time!